RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. I'm just really fortunate. I'm just a marine cargo insurer, but I'm, I work at a syndicate that encourages me to run towards risk and not shy away from it. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Chris McGill, and we're going to discuss cargo insurance. Now, in recent weeks, Chris has become something of a celebrity within the insurance world because he is the underwriter behind the insurance facility that has allowed shipments of grain to leave the Ukrainian port of Odessa. The facility is led by Ascot Group, where Chris has worked for nearly 16 years. Chris was, for a time, also the active underwriter of Parcel Syndicate 1796, and he remains the lead underwriter for the Global Health Risk Facility for the Transport of Vaccines. Currently, at Ascot... He is the Head of Underwriting Innovation, and he is also Head of Cargo, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me on the show. You seem to have been doing cargo insurance for a very long time. So how did you, first of all, how did you end up in insurance, and how did you end up in cargo insurance? So I don't think it's every child's dream to start a career in insurance, and it certainly wasn't mine, but I was fortunate enough to have work experience when I was 15, and spent some time in the Lloyd's market actually with a broker and quite quickly realised what a dynamic place it is to work uh, and really enjoyed the way that business is traded and even to this day in quite a unique manner. And uh, in the introduction, I mentioned the the, the Ukraine cargo facility um, and we'll definitely be coming back to that a bit later on because I want to understand how that works, how it originated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, the the more general aim of this episode is, is to understand cargo insurance uh, as a whole, as a class of business. Um, so first, let's kick off with uh, an overview question, which is, could you provide us with a, a high-level view of, of what cargo insurance actually is and how does it fit within or alongside what we loosely call marine insurance. So I think cargo insurance at its core is there to facilitate global trade. For every vessel that you have, you have multiple counterparties that are involved in what we call a marine adventure. So you have the cargo on board, you've got the vessel that is used to to ship the cargo, you have the crew, and you have liability insurers that provide marine liability. So you have marine liability, hull insurance for a vessel, p insurance for the crew and cargo. And uh, we obviously mentioned kind of ships there, but does it cover other forms of transport? So planes, I don't know, lorries, trains, does, does it cover everything or, or just marine? So it's multimodal. Um, so we can cover air shipments, shipments via vessel, oil, for example, or gas going through pipelines, cargo on board trucks, also, sometimes, although this is has to be specially signed off by all parties involved, but you have seen him before, uh, once before at least, some cargo that was launched into space. And uh, I mean, we should say at this point that cargo insurance is uh, an ancient form of insurance, possibly the, the first type of insurance. Uh, in, in the modern period, uh, modern premium-based insurance 
Uh, the oldest document we have, the old, oldest policy document, dates from 1343, and that is a cargo insurance policy uh, between Amigetto Pinello and Tommaso Grillo, um, relating to the insurance of the transport of, of 10 bales of woolen products uh, from Pisa to Sicily. But be, even before that, there were, you know, there were earlier forms of uh, kind of quasi-insurance, kind of going all the way back to the Babylonians, sort of 2000 BC. So, so Chris, you are part of an ancient and noble trade, and I hope you appreciate that. Um, but let, let's start with the question of who buys it, because uh, the 1343 policy uh, that we just mentioned, uh, that was purchased by the exporter um, of the woolen bales. So is that still the case now? Is it the exporter who buys it? Because you've already mentioned that there are loads of parties involved. So is it the exporter? Is it the importer? Is it the company transport? Who is it that buys the policy? Absolutely. That's a good question. And I guess if I said it depends, that probably wouldn't be the answer you're after. But it does depend. And it depends on the terms of trade, which you can see if you look at the, they're called, they used to be called INCO terms, they're now called terms of trade. And they basically define who is responsible in a transaction to provide insurance coverage. Okay. And uh, the other thing about the 1343 policy was that it was a, a policy for a specific trip on board a specific ship. So is that how it works now? Or presumably it's, it's you know, much more flexible than that now? It's much more cost effective for clients to purchase annual policies where they'll be able to declare multiple shipments throughout a defined period, usually of one year. But you can insure what we call facultative shipments or one-off shipments. And um, the cargo that you insure... Um, are there any specific types of cargo that you are not allowed to insure, or I suppose that you choose not to insure? Um, I'm thinking particularly of, I don't know, arms, guns, uh, drugs, um, and um, Arsenal first team shirts, for example. I won't comment on football teams per se, but yes, there are certainly some cargoes that we can't insure. Um, most of those are defined by export control orders. Um, so they would be particular munitions or particular weapons that we can't insure. There are also sanctions that we have to comply with, US, UK and EU. And um, do you specialise in any, any particular type of cargo or, or do you cover literally anything other than things which are excluded? So, so Ascot, we, we lead 75% of the business that we write. And if you're going to lead business, you need to... Firstly, have the support of the following market. If you don't have the support of the following market, then by definition, you're not a leader. Um, but that means that we have responsibility of having knowledge of multiple different interests and multiple different classes or subclasses of the business. Um, and so that could be oil, it could be pharmaceuticals, it could be well, vaccines, or it could be clothing, any kind of stock throughput, which is a transaction that involves both cargo and storage risk and uh, on, on a very personal level what's what's the maybe bizarre is, is an unfair word but what's what's the most unusual bit of cargo that you've been asked to insure we've done some neat things in the past we've uh, we've insured formula one chassis going from race to race which has always been really interesting particular risk satellites are fascinating uh, and watching them be assembled and integrated and tested which is covered often by a cargo policy is also fascinating um the most interesting risk i've ever covered well i was asked to insure 
I didn't in the end because it was far too valuable, but there was a vehicle that was auctioned very recently that I think was sold for about 125 million euros. Uh, and we were asked if we would be willing to ensure that transit um, going from the auction house to the owner's property. Not one for us, a little bit too much risk involved on that one, but that's certainly a risk that we saw that was very interesting. Right, let's get on to the, the, the nuts and bolts of the policy. Um, so so let, let's say, for the sake of argument, that I'm, I'm the manufacturer of a piece of machinery that is worth £100,000, and I'm wanting to ship it from the UK to Australia. So £100,000, bit of kit, UK to Australia. Okay, series of quick fire questions. Whether the answers are quick fire is a different issue, but the, the, the questions are quick fire. So first one, at what point in time does the policy start? The, the moment it leaves my factory, the moment it hits the port, or when? So that depends, but it will depend on the contract between whether you're buying it um, or selling it and then where you want to take responsibility of that risk. The second question will have the same answer, I suspect, <laughs> which is when does the coverage end? And uh, you're absolutely right. It does have the same answer um, and it will depend on the two parties involved in the transaction. Now, if this particular shipment is an intercompany transfer um, and you've got an office in Australia and you're shipping to that office or that manufacturing plant, then the insurance would cover the entire journey from the moment it leaves the warehouse to the destination warehouse. And uh, how is the indemnity calculated? On the basis that the machinery is £100,000, what would be the limit of indemnity for that risk, if it's a, if it's a one-off risk? So it's, if it's a one-off risk, so we have basis of valuation clauses within our policies which define how we are valuing the cargo for that particular risk or shipment. Now, if this is a one-off shipment, it's an agreed value policy. It's down to underwriters to make sure that agreed value is fair and that also the insured can justify that value. Now, if it's a new um, item of kit that's being sold to someone or another, there'll be an invoice, so it'll be a selling price valuation. If it's intercompany movement, they might want a replacement cost valuation. And if it's a secondhand piece of machinery, then often we have secondhand replacement clauses that make sure that it's a policy of an indemnity and you're not actually going to get a policy of betterment or make money out of the insurance contract. And, and uh, that's talking about a, a one-off policy. If, if the policy was an annual policy, um, do you have aggregate limits of indemnity there or is it, or is it per claim? It will usually be per claim, certainly on a transit policy. Um, however, you may have, if you have static exposure, so you have storage outside the ordinary course of transit, you'll often have aggregate limits for natural catastrophe perils, so earthquake, windstorm and flood. Um, you've anticipated the next question, which is what types of loss does the policy cover? So the policy will cover all risks of physical loss or damage. And that I think that's what is really useful for insureds. They, they've got a very good peace of mind that whatever happens, as long as there's been an external, the operation of an external peril, then they should have coverage for physical loss or damage to their cargo. Um, now, you can potentially have delay in startup, which is 
a form of loss of profits coverage for particular cargoes, but that is very much kept at project cargo level and is not for a general annual cargo policy. Okay. And um, how is the premium calculated? How do you assess the risk? How do you assess the premium? Well, a lot of that depends on what is being insured. Is it perishable or not? You know, how exposed uh, would it be to, to a long journey? For example, reefer containers, refrigerated containers, that particular risk level is much higher than shipping widgets or nuts and bolts in a container. So there's many different scenarios and uh, risk profiles that we have to consider, but then the rate itself will be applied to usually to the sum insured. And uh, I'm aware of policies that are effectively uh, kind of real-time policies. So if, if a ship is heading towards a war zone, it suddenly gets a message, this is going to increase your premium and whatever. But, the, but is that something that you do as well? So we do do that. We're not as automated as the marine hull market. And actually, that's something that the cargo market, as much as possible, needs to try and get better at because marine hull insurers who are insuring the vessels themselves will know what vessels they insure and are able to track those vessels using AIS satellite data. Now, cargo insurers, nine times out of 10, do not know what vessel their cargo is on. Um, And especially if you're insuring hundreds of clients or thousands of clients that are making ship, you know, hundreds or millions of shipments a day, you're never really going to know what vessel you're exposed to. So it's incredibly difficult for cargo insurers to know when one of their vessels is about to go into dangerous or war zone exposed regions like the Black Sea at the moment. So what the cargo market tends to do is it defines areas that if you are going into those zones and you're aware of it, then you have to pay an additional premium. Um, But then we are down to the insured knowing the routes that they're taking um, and then declaring those to the policy. So what happens if if it goes into an area which is, in effect, excluded or has to be notified to you, but the ship goes in there anyway and then the the cargo is lost as a result of, I don't know, an attack or something like that? that, Is that loss, cargo loss, then excluded? Because ultimately it's not the cargo insured's fault that the ship is in the wrong area. So that all depends on whether a seven-day notice of cancellation has been given to that insured for war perils. So once a vessel starts its journey or commences its journey, it will be covered. Now, if a war area um, is defined as a new area and insurers issue a seven-day notice of cancellation for that area, it's down to us to inform the insureds that there is no more coverage provided in that area. However, crucially, notice of cancellation doesn't apply to vessels that have already commenced their voyage. Um, So then it becomes more of a case of an insured can then make a decision if they want to continue using that route. And if they do, to buy back war coverage, there will be an additional premium applied. Wow. It's more complicated than you think, isn't it? Um, do you have salvage rights? And I suppose alongside that, do you have subrogation rights? So salvage rights, if the thing is goes to the bottom of the sea, or subrogation rights, if, if it's damaged due to a third party's fault? This is going to be another, it depends, answer, unfortunately. <laughs> but, so what we have is for subrogation, for example, subrogation is a very, you know an old established principle of insurance. Um, but sometimes you will have insureds ask, Um, you to note a waiver of subrogation. So if they're dealing with 
a particular ship owner um, or shipping company that they use all the time and they do not want insurers to subrogate against that ship owner if they're at fault following a loss, we can see that, um, but those have to be agreed specifically. Um, and then salvage rights, that again depends on the wording. So we have clauses in our policies that are control of damaged goods clauses and also brands and labels clauses. And what that means, control of damaged goods can either effectively be in conjunction with insurers, in which case, if you've had a loss, insurers have the right to adjust that loss, or you have control of damaged goods clauses that are a lot broader for insureds, but allows them to be the sole decider on the end, whatever will happen to those goods, so will they be destroyed? Um, and that obviously has an impact on, on salvage, um, but a lot of that comes down against the brands and labels clause where if an insured has their brand or a label on a product and they don't want faulty products to go out into the wider market, then they will want a control of damaged goods clause, which will mean that they have, they're the sole decision maker uh, in destruction of goods. This is brilliant. I love this. Okay, let's move on to kind of two high profile examples of uh, cargo insurance where you have personally been involved, um, both of which I've mentioned in the introduction. Um, so the first one, is the, uh, the the global health risk facility uh, that was used um, and kind of came to the attention of the world, particularly in December 2020, when it was being used to provide the insurance for the, the transportation of the COVID vaccine um, around the world. So talk to us about that and how it came into existence and uh, kind of, I suppose, is it still being used now? And if so, how widely? So... That whole, the global health risk facility, the genesis of that actually occurred before COVID was even a thing. We had met a company called Parcel, who their mission statement as a company was to help provide risk management and safe supply chains of vaccines for uh, children in lower income countries. And I was quite inspired by their, their mission statement and wanted to try and provide a solution for ensuring those vaccines and making sure that they, they got to the people that need them most, and not just vaccines, any global health commodity. And the insurance market at, at this point had very little penetration into, into that region or those regions. So we, we set up a meeting back in December 2019 with the Global Vaccine Alliance and also the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who were both heavily involved in this venture. And we gathered a load of syndicates who would normally be my competitors into a room and said, we've got a responsibility for providing a solution for this you know, really important supply chain. And we should be able to do something like this if we work together and syndicate the risk. So we'd started conversations and they started really positively. And then COVID struck and we were so far down the line, we decided we had to pivot and try and ensure that when COVID vaccines were required for these lower income countries, that they would have insurance that was available to them and that insurance wouldn't be an, an inhibitor to them in importing these, these important vaccines. So we, uh, working from home, managed to uh, set up a, a special purpose vehicle known as a syndicate in a box, which enables 
syndicates to well mini syndicates effectively to be set up so new capital to come into Lloyd's and if it wasn't for syndicate in a box we wouldn't have been able to set up syndicate 1796 and we actually had funding from the US government so the development finance corporation which backed and provided the capital for the syndicate which I think was a first um, in, in Lloyd's history actually which was Fantastic and something that, that we were really proud of. And I think the market as a whole responded really well to that facility. And we came together to provide this solution. And it's been used and it's still being used to this day, albeit COVID vaccines are, are not required quite as much, fortunately, as, as, as they were in the past. But I think that was a first step in, in an important supply chain solution. Exactly. And uh, tell us why it's Syndicate 1796 as well. Why is it that number? Well, fortunately, that number was still available. So when you set up, set up a syndicate within Lloyd's and we were trying to think what syndicate name or number we, we could give and we had to check with Lloyd's what was available. And it just so happened that 1796 was available. And the reason we chose 1796 was that was the year Edward Jenner created the first ever vaccine. And uh, I'm, I'm based in Bristol. So Edward Jenner was, he did it just up the road. Um, and is, uh, if anyone's visiting the West Country, you can actually go and see Edward Jenner's house where he lived um, and his studio where he, against all ethics, injected people with smallpox. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's a completely different story. Um, but uh, the, the, that's, the, that's the first of the um, kind of high profile examples. But the second one is is the one which is, yeah, absolutely shows the, the vital importance of insurance. And uh, I think probably the vital importance of Lloyd's as well, which is the the, the grain shipments, the, the the fact that the grain ship, we had to get the grain shipments out of Odessa kind of through this narrow corridor uh, across, across the Black Sea, um, which started in, was it July, August, kind of but very recently. Um, and and is only possible because of insurance. So 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 t- tell us about that and how that facility came into existence and and t- your involvement with that. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think you you touched on it. It's it's exactly what the insurance market and the Lloyd's market in particular should be able to to respond to and, and provide coverage for. Um, so we'd actually started initial conversations around providing insurance for for grain back in May. Um, you could see on, in the news very regularly the terrible situation unfolding in, in the Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine provides such huge amounts of food products and fertilisers to the rest of the world. And they were building up in these ports and a food crisis would ensue if we couldn't get, or anyone, if anyone couldn't get these grains out of, out of country. So we ended up, we decided to set, do something about it in May and set something up just in case a naval corridor or any kind of safe corridor was to be set up. Because I and Ascot, we didn't want insurance to be an obstacle. I said at the beginning, I feel cargo insurance is there to enable global trade and it's, we, we play a vital role in that. And... I'd heard some news articles mentioning that insurance, marine insurers, insurers were going to be the obstruction once a safe corridor was set up. Um, but I was delighted that I knew that we were already halfway down 
down the track. Now, we didn't actually know that a naval corridor or a safe corridor was going to be actually agreed or signed until the 22nd of July. When it was signed, I was working from home and the, uh, the new, I had the news on and they went live to Istanbul where the, uh, the various countries were signing this agreement. Um, and I picked up the phone to, uh, to the brokers at Marsh and said, it's go time. We need to f- really fill this out and make sure we're ready to go in ultra quick time. Um, and fortunately, like I said, we were halfway there. So we were able to announce the launch of this facility seven days later which was really well received by the market. And I'm really proud of how the market responded. There's 22 different insurers providing capacity to the facility. We're making sure everyone gets the same deal. No one gets preferential treatment. um, And it's been used uh, an awful lot, which was great to see. Um, And yeah, we're we're really proud of of the facility and and what the market was able to do. Absolutely. And... Uh, insurance often doesn't get much credit <laughs> for anything, um, but this is this is one of those examples which is, you know, it, it just becomes obvious that actually the world ticks, the world moves, transport happens because of insurance, because of people like yourself um, kind of underwriting this business and providing insurance. Without that, trade wouldn't international trade, most international trade wouldn't happen. Um, and yeah, I, I think it, it is that the Ukraine kind of shipments um, insurance in particular just highlights that fact that insurance underpins modern life. Um, and uh, so, so I, I, you don't need my thanks or congratulations, but well done and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Um, and I really appreciate the support that, that the market gave gave to us. Um, and to, to the clients that needed 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 the market and uh, the market was able to respond in a in a coordinated manner so yeah I was thrilled yeah and you've already mentioned marsh marsh's involvement as as the brokers on the facility so kind of a, a shout out to them as well um one of your titles is is head of underwriting innovation at ascot i mean we, we've seen the evidence of that in in the last two things we've talked about that the 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 vaccine uh, in facility and the uh, and the, the Ukrainian shipments facility, um, but but what 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 does that what does that role involve? Underwriting innovation, kind of a, the, what what what's your what's your day job on that? So that, that's that's a really good question actually. And I mean, you've mentioned some of the uh, first insurance policies. I think stretching back to thirteen forty three. I think. Some insurance or insurance companies haven't evolved much uh, since since that time. So, I think there's there's a lot that the insurance market can do to improve efficiency. And you know, I think innovation is not just about underwriting; it's about every facet of an insurance company. Um, and that is down to how we settle claims. Can we settle claims faster? Can we ensure that clients are really comfortable that they're going to be made whole, uh, you know, much quicker than they might expect. How can we improve the way that we operate in a back office function, using technology to reduce overkeying of items and again processing, and then that data that is processed. What do we actually do with that data? How do we make ourselves better insurers using that data? And then underwriting new products 
what do insureds want? What are insurers looking for that the insurance market isn't providing at the moment? Um, and you hear plenty of buzzwords like intangible assets and how can we cover that? How can we cover brand reputation? And I'm, I'm just really fortunate. I'm just a marine cargo insurer, but I'm, I work at a syndicate that encourages me to run towards risk and not shy away from it. Do it in a measured way and a calculated manner, of course. Um, but they're, you know, they're willing to, to, to give me and the innovation committee that we've set up at Ascot um, free reign to, to test things, to question the narrative, question the status quo um, and, and see what we can come up with. And I think there's a lot of people in the market doing really great things on, on innovation and it's an exciting, exciting thing to be part of. So I really enjoy it. And, and if, if, if we're doing this interview again in, in 15 years time, say, what, what do you think the most noticeable change would be in cargo insurance? I would love to say um, claims adjusting being an awful lot faster for clients. The fact that we as, as Ascot pride ourselves on how quickly we turn around claims and that the speed of settling claims is a measurement that lots of syndicates and insurance brokers will measure their insurance syndicates on based on performance tells you that there is a problem there because if you're identifying insurers that do not pay their claims quickly enough then clearly there's a problem because others are paying them faster and why are others paying their claims faster well we need to figure that out but i think technology will play a huge part in marine cargo we're seeing the start of it um, with companies like parcel using IoT devices to monitor um, perishable goods. Um, there's also companies like InsureWave that are doing amazing things on vessel tracking. Um, we're working closely with them on the Ukraine grain facility. Um, so 10 to 15 years, who knows, will, it, will there even be an insurance contract that is written down and has to renew every year? Will it be a lot more dynamic? Will there be a lot more parametric insurance. I think we might see a bit more of that in, in marine cargo. Um, but there's a lot to be done with, with marine cargo insurance. I think it's a great line of business. I really enjoy working in it. Um, and I'm excited to see what happens in the next 10, 15 years. And uh, finally, um, if you're talking to someone who's thinking about, you know, the, the younger version of yourself maybe, who's thinking about taking on a career in insurance, what, what would you say to them? How would you encourage well, them? Well, I think getting someone even to think about insurance is the first step. We need to try and get talent away from other financial institutions. Um, we've just started up a very successful intern programme at Ascot that actually wasn't necessarily just for university graduates either. It was for people that are hungry to learn more about the insurance market. So getting people in the door in the first place is, is the most important thing. And then I would just encourage anyone that starts in, in the market to do as much as they can to see every part of the business in the first month, six months or a year of their career. Try and spend some time with a broker, try and spend some time claims adjuster, try and spend some time with some lawyers, try and spend some time with an underwriter and just get a feel for what the insurance market does and what, what products it can bring to insureds and just enjoy it. I think it's a great industry to be in. It's very relationship driven, which makes it a pleasure, really. Thank you, Chris. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio.
Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.